Morning, New Hope. If you believe that He is the God of breakthroughs, would you say amen this morning? I I personally uh, can resonate with what Michael was speaking about earlier when he was referring to prayer, that we need to be praying against division, and there's a lot of division in our nation. It's not a newsflash. If we believe that He is the God of breakthroughs, we would be saying in the same way that He could divide waters so that people could pass on dry land in the same way that He can crush mountains, God can bring unity back again, can He? I hope you believe that. He can do that. But it can only happen through God, and so that's why we pray. So I'm going to start out in the most unusual way this morning. I'm going to ask you to envision someone or something in your mind. I want you to think of someone that you despise or something. And I bet it pops in your mind instantly, right? It's usually right there for us. Now, maybe you're thinking, I I don't despise anything. I don't despise anyone. Maybe you'll have to reach back in your past and, and think of a setting or someone that you despise. And at the same time you're thinking of that, I'm going to ask you to ponder this thought. To what length did Jesus have to go to reach you? What price did He have to pay to reach into your world? It's especially poignant as we look at Luke 15 this morning. So if you did bring a Bible with you, maybe you're watching at home, I'm going to encourage you to get your Bible out. Maybe you have it electronically or hard copy. Go to Luke 15. And if you're at home, I would encourage you to download the notes right now. And and maybe you got a chance to pick them up on your way into the auditorium this morning if you're here in person. If that's the case, you didn't get one, they're on the table back there. Feel free. You, You can certainly get up and grab a set of notes back there. I think it'll help you a lot. Um, Just a a heads up, this is going to be kind of a two-parter. We've been working through these parables for a while, and I'll I'll let you know where this is headed in just a minute. But I want you to consider that question that I asked you, who's someone that you despise or something that you despise, and let's take that to the Father as we pray right now. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we recognize that there's a potential, a possibility that every one of us could be guilty of harboring anger against people we've never even met. It can be people on the national scene whom we don't know, but they're precious to you. So we recognize that division and the healing of division and unity comes from you and it begins with us in our own personal world. So, God, I'm going to ask that you do some heart surgery on us this week, this this morning, that as we turn our minds to this really familiar parable, that you illuminate our thinking, that you illuminate our understanding, and not allow us to wait for someone else to bring unity, but rather that we would be working toward it. Division does not please you. So, Father, when we think of people specifically in our own life, I ask, God, that you would cause us to be at least in the mindset where we're willing to take a step. Guide us now, Father. Illuminate our minds. Do the work that only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit as we study your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. 
For months now, we've been working through the parables. If you're new to New Hope, we started this back in October of last year. And it's kind of common here at New Hope that we end up being in studies for a long time, right? Um, Romans took three years for us. The parables, we're a year into it. We've done 30 or so, probably a little more than that. There's a few more to go in book three. And, and the books are in the back. They're free back there if you want to grab one, book three. Book four is coming up soon, and that will be the last one in the parable set. There's like 43 parables in the Bible. This morning, we have what I think is the most famous parable. The way that God uses parables is to show what He's like, to show what His kingdom is like, to show what eternity is like, and to show what His expectations are of us. All four of those elements are found in this particular parable this morning. This is why I think most people are really drawn to this one. So as Luke 15 begins, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. It's the last few months of His life. He knows that. But most around him don't know that, even though he's announced it. So he's making his way around the Sea of Galilee. He's in the southern region. He stopped for dinner. We saw that a couple weeks ago at someone's house, a Pharisee's house. And then he began explaining what it looked like at the banquet table of God. And now he's making his way towards Jerusalem, and he encounters some more Pharisees. And they see what's going on with him. And they're not happy about it. Because Jesus has been doing this. He's been saying to individuals at that great banquet table of God, around that table, there's going to be those who are crippled, those who are lame, those who have been outcast of society. Along with all those who have been received by God, it's going to be those who have been disdained by society. And that doesn't sit well with the Pharisees. Well, naturally, if you're the one who's been an outcast and you've been disdained, You've been shut out. You're going to be really attracted to that message when you hear that. And so that's what we find in Luke 15, verse 1. This is the way it starts. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to Him. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the tax collectors were hated because they were in partnership with Rome, and they were literally stealing from the people of Israel. And they were hated because they became compatriots with Rome to punish the people of Israel. And it's their own guys, it's their own family, it's their own friends who become these tax collectors. And so they ostracize them, they're regarded as outcasts, they don't want to be around them. So it's really significant to me that Jesus is like a magnet to people like that. Jesus is like a magnet to people who are outcast, but the Pharisees repel them. So Jesus attracts, they repel. How is that true? Is it because He went into the back alleys? Is it because Jesus hang out, uh, hung out in, in the brothels? Did He go into the bars in order to draw those people in, or were they coming to Him? Well, it's pretty clear that they're coming to Him. He doesn't have to be of the world to be in the world. He sets himself above that. He's genuinely reaching people from all walks of life. How? By the power of his person, by the power of his personality. They're coming to Jesus not because he compromised, but because he legitimately cares, and he demonstrates that. Uh, Meanwhile, Israel's leaders are continually harassing him, like, why are you hanging out with those people? Don't, they, don't, don't you understand what they're going to do to your reputation? Don't you know how ruinous they are? 
You get that in verse 2, but both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, The Pharisees really know their Bible. If they lived in 2020, they'd be showing up at church because they never miss synagogue. They know the Bible really well, and they have this personal purity standard by which they raise themselves above everyone else and, and look down a very long nose of righteousness at others. And that personal purity standard that they have is that they would separate themselves from others. Their very name, Pharisee, actually means the separated ones. So that's their standard. And they see Jesus eating with people that they would never associate with. They will never lower themselves to eat with these people. They actually had a saying in the Old Testament that carried over into the New Testament era. It went like this, one must never associate with ungodly people. And the rabbis believed that to such a degree that they wouldn't even teach the ungodly people. They wouldn't even sit down with them. It's an absolutely astounding contrast when we see Jesus understanding the basic needs of people, and yet the Pharisees are criticizing and keeping their distance. Jesus knows this about them, so verse 3, verse 3, so He told them this parable, and it should be plural, parables, because you're going to get three. The first two go really, really fast, which are setting up the big one. Now, true to the Pharisees' name, the separated ones, they believe in this separation from sinners, And here's why, because in their mind, God hates the outcast. God despises them, and therefore He has no use for them. And I'm intentionally using that word that we started out with this morning, who do you despise? Because in the Pharisee's mind, God has a pecking order. And there's people that he must despise. So Jesus tells them this parable, and it starts out this way in verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Sheep stray, it's what they do, right? Lori and I had sheep, and we tried to keep them in the pasture. Occasionally, Lori wanted them to get greener grass, so we'd open the gate and let them out. They'd come out in the yard, and before you know it, you turn your back on them, and they're gone. And more than once, they went to our neighbors, and they're starting to need our neighbor's grass, and then all of a sudden, they like the neighbor's apple trees. And, you know, corralling them and getting them back is not an easy task. Sheep stray, it's what they do. That's why they need a shepherd. Well, the Pharisees have no problem whatsoever seeing sinners as lost sheep. They totally can identify with that. Yeah, Jesus, you're right. I'm tracking with you. But then Jesus challenges their thinking. He says, what happens when that lost sheep is brought back? And so he uses verse 7 in saying, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over that lost one that returns than the 99 who need no repentance. Who are the 99? Who's he talking about? That's a really sarcastic rebuke. The Pharisees think they're the righteous ones. They think they don't need any repentance. 
I please God. I make God happy. I bring Him joy. That's the mindset. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, you don't get it. Heaven's joy is in the recovery of the lost. You're so far from God, you don't even know what brings God joy. And then he throws in this detail. God actively is the one who seeks out the lost. God is the one who goes after them to bring them home. Now, the rabbis agreed. They they were all on the same page that God would welcome a penitent person. Someone who would repent, God would welcome that person and bring them back. But it's a completely new idea to them that God is a seeking God. This is new information. God takes the initiative. That's why you find Jesus clarifying in Luke 19.10. Look with me on the screen at this one. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's new information. God does that. See, in the mindset of the ancient Jewish people, there's this quote, and it, it was carried over into this century, into the 2020 era. It's quoted often by rabbis today. They would say, there is joy before God when those who provoke Him perish from the earth. Rabbi Edersheim has said that most recently. There's joy before God when those who provoke Him perish from the earth. Well, wait, is that consistent with the Bible? Because in the Bible, my Bible says, God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So it doesn't bring Him joy when they perish. How do I understand this? Jesus is revealing a very radically different image of God. As, as the one who's rejoicing over those who are created in his image, they're returning to the fold. So let's go to the next verse. He's, this is the other parable. Verse 8, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. Now, the coin in this story is a drachma. In the Greek language, it's a a day laborer's wage. It's what they're paid. If they show up at the orchard and work for a day, they get paid in drachma at the end of the day. Well, young ladies, when they were married, would be given a gift of drachma, usually ten silver coins which were woven into a headdress. It's the forerunner of the modern wedding ring. They would put the 10 coins on their head in this woven headdress to signify, I'm no longer available, I'm married now, I'm I'm a married girl, I belong to someone. Well, it'd be a tragedy for her to lose one of those 10 coins in that headdress, whether or not that's what Jesus is driving at with the 10 coins, I don't know specifically, but here's what I do know. Palestine houses in the Middle East, they're really dark. They didn't have windows, and if they did, they had really tiny little windows. You have to light a lamp to search even in a very bright sunlit day. So she sets out the brightest lamp that she can find and, and gets out her broom and begins reaching into the corners to sweep the floor, hoping, beyond hope, that maybe she can find that silver coin and and drag it, and then she hears the clinking on the floor. And Jesus says, for her joy, she lets people know, I've got it, it's back, something precious to me has been recovered. Well, then comes verse 10. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's another new detail that Jesus has just unleashed here. When someone becomes a part of God's kingdom, he says, heaven explodes with joy. Did you know that? That there was a day in time, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, there's a day in history when heaven exploded in joy over your decision to come to Christ. Isn't that a cool thought? And the angels led the cheerleading party. They celebrated over the fact that you came to Christ. So then to really drive the point home, Jesus comes to the parable of all parables. It's the prodigal son. And these first two have set it up. Except for one other parable that we're going to get into in a few weeks, I think likely this is the most inexhaustible parable. And yet at the same time, a child can grab the really basic truth here. Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson regarded this as the finest short story that has ever been written. And they ought to know, they wrote a lot of short stories. So experts alike would say, this is a phenomenal story. And the Pharisees actually appear as characters in this story. And you're going to see them in all their ugliness, even though it's difficult for them to see themselves. And that's actually one of the surprises when it comes to the end. Now, to this point, they're in complete agreement with Jesus. They're tracking with the lost sheep. They're tracking with the lost coin. It makes sense to them. But what's coming now doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. Go with me to verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Let's remember coming into this that the Bible is set in a culture way different than ours, and I know you know that mentally. I'm I'm reminding us for the sake of the reality of what's going on here, we need to keep this in context because there's a danger that we could take some applications here which totally miss the mark. So this deserves an extensive examination, and and that's why I'm telling you we're going to do this this week and next week. We're only going to get through half of it this morning. Let's just bear down on the first statement that this younger son made. Look with me on the screen, verse 11, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. In the minds of Jesus' audience, this is an outrageous request. How could he do that? It's the pinnacle of shame. It's the equivalent of wishing your father was dead. In a normal setting, the firstborn son will receive two-thirds of the family estate upon the death of the father. And the second-born son and any siblings that came after that, they got a portion. Well, this second-born son is saying, give me my share. What's unusual about this second-born's request is this. He wants his share immediately. He wants it now. Uh, It's customary then, as it is today, to wait for the death of someone to receive the inheritance. So this kind of a request this kind of legal action he's asking for, it, it might be taken during the time of a father, but only for the father to identify what the child is going to receive, not to give it to him at this point in time. The second-born son is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I want to separate from you. Now, here's a crucial detail. A father could give estate gifts to his children at any time. 
but it would be given in promise or in pledge. In other words, to say, here's what is going to be yours. This will be set aside for you. That's a crucial detail in this story. We need to keep that thought in mind because the Father would never say, you can take possession of it now. They just wouldn't do that. The children wouldn't ask for it. They would never ask their dad to relinquish his sustenance, his, his life. So he can say that will be yours, but not take it now. So when Jesus says this for the Pharisees and the audience sitting there, their reaction is, what? How could this be? This is absolutely despicable. Because in the first century, the culture of honor and shame is something they live with every single day. Honoring your parents is at the top of the social elite list. It comes right from Exodus. Let me show you the Ten Commandments. Look with me on the screen. Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and your mother. And it comes with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Exodus, Exodus 20:12. So this young man is demonstrating utter disrespect. He lacks any visible love whatsoever for his father. And check this, he has no gratitude for the legacy of the generations that have gone before him. All that's been passed down through the family has no regard whatsoever. So make no mistake what's going on here is this young man is saying, you are a barrier to my plans. I want freedom and I want out of this family now. And understand that when he's making this request, it brings shame upon the family and on the entire community. So normally, the people of the community and the members of the family would expect the reaction of the father would be a slap across the face. Open-handed, open palm, leave a mark. Let him know that he has disrespected the father. This is what they would expect him to do because it's a typical Jewish gesture at that time in order to show disdain for someone who benefited from everything from the family to make this kind of a demand, that's the way you treat your father, a slap. And then followed by public shaming and then a cutting off. At this point, you're out. You're dead. And check this. This will come out next week when we talk about this. The only way back is restitution. You have to do something to earn your way back. This is, is as serious as it gets. This is a serious breach. That's why you find the father in verse 24 saying, my son is dead, or saying to his brother, his older brother, your brother who is dead. That's the way they regarded him in this particular setting. So know this, there is no way that Jesus could portray greater shame on a person than what he's just described here. Now, of course, the entire village gets word of this. And the entire village expects him to respond the way that they expect him to respond, with, with a slap. They expect him to be furious and to dismiss the son from the family. And so here's a surprise. You look back at verse 12 and look at the reaction of the father. It says, he divided his wealth. The, the Greek word that's used there is the word bios. It's the root for biology. 
he divided his life. The reason they use this intentionally is because it's describing the lifetime accumulation of what the Father had received from previous generations and from His own work, all of His effort, all of His energy. It's what the family has produced. So our English text reads the way you're going to see this on the screen. Look at Luke 15, 12 again. Our English text reads this way. So He divided His wealth between Him. But the Greek text reads this way. He divided to them the life, meaning that which has taken a lifetime to accumulate. And rather than strike him for his insolence, the father grants his request and he lets him go. He lets him go. This is Romans 1. Scripture speaks to Scripture. This is exactly what Paul described in Romans 1. He turned them over, or God, the Father, gave them over. Go with me to the next verse, Luke 15, 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. Not many days later, meaning pretty fast, and he gathers everything together, and he doesn't wait long, and he literally, in the Greek language, is very specific. He's taking all of his capital, and he's saying, I want to be cashed out. I know you gave me horses and camel and grain. I know you gave me real estate. I want to cash out of this. Now, technically, he can sell the property because there's a loophole in the law. Yeah, you're supposed to wait until the dad dies, but if you can find a buyer... If you can find someone to purchase your interest in an estate, they can cash you out if they agree not to receive the goods until the father dies. You know, the word inheritance comes with responsibility. I've received inheritance in my life from a family member who has died. And with the inheritance implicit within that is the accountability the responsibility to become a steward of what's been passed on to you. When Jesus speaks of this issue, he's using a phrase in the Greek language, tesousias. So when the young man comes to his father and says, I want you to divide the estate, give me my share, tesousias. I want the capital. I, I want the horses. I want the camels. I want the grain. I want the real estate, but I don't want the responsibility. I don't want the stewardship. I don't want the accountability. Tesusius is very specific. Give me what's mine. I want my stuff, and I want to be cashed out. So he finds a buyer for his share. This is like going to a cash advance store. Someone knows they have a paycheck coming, and they're going to trade it. This is the way we can get a modern mindset around this. I, I want cash now, and you can take possession at a future date, in this case, when my father is dead. Well, we do this today. We buy futures in the stock market. Futures market is hedging against the future, buying something on the chance that it's going to produce in the future. And likely, when you're buying in the futures market, you're going to get something at a really good price because the seller is desperate. In this case, he's going to sell cheap so the operative word becomes distant. 
because he's going to get out, and he's going to get out as fast and as far as he can, because I don't want daddy's restrictions on me no more. Don't ask me to live under that. So in the Gentile world, a distant land is any land that's not Israel. You get outside of Israel, which is not a very big country geographically, and you're in Gentile country. So distant land is Gentile land. That's where he's headed. And once he has control, he leaves nothing behind that's going to serve as an anchor to bring him back because he's got a pile of cash now. He's got things to see, places to go, people to meet, people he wants to party with. And the Scriptures go on to say that he squandered his wealth. Go with me to verse, the remainder of verse 13. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. You might remember the parable of the seed sower, and we talked about the seeds being scattered out on the earth. That's the same imagery that's used here. His wealth is just being scattered. It's being thrown, thrown in any direction he wants it to go, hence the meaning of the word prodigal. Prodigal means wasted. It, it means loose living. And it goes on to say in the story in verse 30, he, he spent his money with the prostitutes, He's sleeping around, devoured his wealth with the harlots. We would say he, he's trashing his life. And here in church, herein is the foolishness of acting out sin. When someone wants their own way, they want anything but God. They want as far away from God as they possibly can get. And they want to get away now. No accountability. Cash me out. And the hard thing for you and I, or, or maybe you've gone through this yourself, what's uncomfortable is when you're watching someone caught up in really ungodly decisions, usually they're selling themselves cheap. They're missing out on what the future is. They're trading the opportunities, the provisions of what God has made for them. All the good things that God has in store, a deeper relationship is sold in a fire sale. And it's excruciating to watch. So this distant country that the Bible's talking about here, it doesn't have to be geographically distant because it begins in the heart first. That's where it originates. And with this young man, he's imagined a freedom far away from his dad. I want my own way. And he's breaking his father's heart. If you personally have run from God at some point, and even in small ways, if, if you've run the opposite direction, you know, <laughs> no one has to tell you, you know life in a distant country is rarely what we hoped for. It rarely lives up to expectations. But for him, when he first arrives, he's the new guy in town, and he's got a big bankroll. He's got lots of cash. And so he attracts lots of people, and he soon goes on this wild spending spree, and he's collecting along the way all the A-listers that want to be with him, and the money begins disappearing, and soon the A-listers become B-listers, and the B-listers are going to become D-listers, and soon he finds himself sleeping with the prostitutes, and he's got all the riffraff of town clinging at him because all the fake friends are gone. Soon he's surrounded with people who just want to take from him. But the story says his money is gone at that point. He didn't see that coming. 
And he didn't see this next part coming, verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Famine has a way of correcting your thinking. Trauma has a way of correcting your thinking. COVID-19 has a way of correcting your thinking, right? It has a way of adjusting your thought life about what's important, what's not important. What do I do? What do I not do? So trauma can bring a level of desperation that's beyond anything that we can conceive of. You and I, we've not known famine in our lifetime in the United States. You go back to the 1930s during the time of the Dust Bowl era, they knew famine. But not in our generation. We haven't seen famine. We think famine is a shortage of toilet paper at the store. Just saying. I mean, we don't have a good perspective on this. You go back and read about famine in other countries. People eating their pets. Desperation because the the hunger is so excruciating. It's pretty ugly, and I'm not going to go into that. But for this young guy, he's not ready to go home yet. Yeah, it's bad, but he's not fully humbled. So he has to get a job. But it's a famine, and jobs are hard to come by. So he's going to be forced to do for a stranger what he will not do for his own father. He's got to go to work. He's going to work hard because he attaches himself to a pig farmer. Go with me to verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So he got two disasters going on at the same time, two simultaneous disasters. He's completely run out of money. That's disaster number one. And now he's running straight into a famine. The first disaster was his fault. He caused it. But the second disaster is no fault of his. But God works through famine, doesn't he? God works through plagues. God works through COVID. And he works through things like that to draw people to himself. So we have a young man who's completely bankrupt. He's walking the streets. He has nothing. And he's thinking, I need a job which he's going to be fortunate to find because he's destitute of resources and he attaches himself to a pig farmer. Feeding pigs. You ever been around a pig farm? Maybe you've driven by a pig farm and it will leave a memory with you. There's a certain fragrance. My uncle raised pigs. I know of what I speak. He sent me out to feed pigs occasionally. Things are dangerous, man. Dangerous and they stink. So he's going to attach himself to a pig farmer. He's feeding pigs, and check this, he wants their food. I've fed pigs, and I know what their food looks like. I don't want their food. So kosher Jew or not, how repulsive is that? And he doesn't have permission to eat the pig's food. So he's fattening the pigs while he's starving. He's fallen as far as he possibly can. He's not only run to a Gentile nation, he's working for a Gentile, feeding pigs, and he wants to break bread with the pigs. 
I don't know if you know the Old Testament regulations on this, but it's forbidden for a righteous Jew to even be in contact with pigs. It would make you unclean. The original language gives you a further insight into what's going on here. In the Greek language, it uses the word koalo. And when I do wedding ceremonies and I marry a bride and groom, at the very end of the ceremony, I always use this same phrase with them. Because Scripture says, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And Jesus speaks of this issue of people being joined together, husband and wife. With a join together is proskoalo, leaning into, meaning this. Koalo is glue. It's a chemical reaction, a bond, when things are joined together. This young man has koalo himself to this farmer. He attaches himself to this pig farmer. The implication is, it's not the farmer's idea. If you've been to a third world country, you know exactly what I'm about to describe. I've gone into Mexico, I've been into Africa, and I've seen this repetitive behavior. One of the hardest things you'll ever face when you're traveling a third world country is individuals who are begging on the street that attach themselves to you. In Mexico, the first time I encountered it, I was 23 years old, and I'm walking down a sidewalk, and children run out and grab me by the ankle. I thought they were just playing a game, so I'm shuffling along trying to shake them off. And they begin excuse my language, they begin spitting on my shoe. As they're spitting on my shoe, I'm very careful about not putting the H in there that time. As they're spitting on my shoe, they begin saying, shine your shoe, shine your shoe. They don't know a lot of English. Shine your shoe. What they want was an exchange. They want me to give them a dollar so they'll polish my shoe. So I'm dragging along because they've attached themselves to my leg. I experienced the same thing in Africa. You've been in a third world setting, you know what it is to see someone glue themselves to another person. You're beginning to get a picture of someone who's that desperate because of the situation. This guy's begging on the street, and he sticks himself to this pig farmer, and he's disgraced himself in every way he possibly could. A Jewish young man feeding pigs in a Gentile land, serving a Gentile. Every single time he performs his duties, he's moving further and further and further away from God. God's standards, God's expectations. You and I cannot begin to fathom the horror that the Pharisees are experiencing as they're envisioning this young man that Jesus is talking about. This is life in high definition. You want really vivid pictures of a sinner? This is exactly the kind of people that Jesus is eating with. That's why he goes into this parable. See, in their world, you can't be worse than to scorn your father and to be filled with materialistic greed And to add to that the selling off of the family estate to a loan shark and then run to a distant land and align yourself with a Gentile and sleep with anybody who comes along and find out nobody cares for you and nobody will feed you and you're living like a bottom feeder to his family and to his village. He's dead. He's, He's gone. 
from a place of provision under a wonderful, compassionate, generous Father. He's come to this. This is life in the pit. The resources are gone. The fake friends are gone. He's completely destitute. Verse 16 ends by saying, nobody gave him anything, and now he's starving to death. Sin at its core is a running from God, doing whatever you can to give God no thought, and it always, 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 always ends in pig slop, destitute, in danger of dying. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Pay very careful attention to that phrase. It's going to come out strong next week. Make me as one of your hired men. Biblically, to repent means to change your mind. You're going in one direction, you turn and go in the opposite direction. Repenting always includes action. Repenting means to go in the opposite direction. Jesus says he came to himself. And we're tempted to think that this is suggesting that he's not really been himself. Up till now, he's been out of his mind. He's not acting like himself. That's untrue. If that's what you're thinking, that's not true. This is a vivid picture, church, of what we are all capable of. Apart from the Holy Spirit, about, apart from the protection of God, this is human nature. I've, I've read many things in obviously preparation for this, and I, I read a quote from an old dead theologian at this point. I can't remember his name, but I, I want to give you the quote. He said, there is an insanity in sin that paralyzes the image of God within us and liberates the animal inside us. There's an insanity in sin that paralyzes the image of God within us and liberates the animal inside us. I think it's a very accurate description for this young man. So Jesus uses the language, he came to himself. How do I understand that? In this sense. He's facing who he really is. He's facing who he is and what he's done. And this reality check of looking in the mirror is this. I'm a sinner, and I need salvation. And the result is true repentance, and you know it's legitimate for this reason. The expression that he's using here for sorrow is not for what he lost. I can't believe I lost my bankroll. No, his sorrow is for what he's done to his father. I've sinned against you. This is legitimate repentance. I've sinned. I'm not making excuses. I'm owning it. Romans 2 speaks to this. I, I think some of you probably remember back to when we were in Romans. I, I know it was a long journey and it was a while ago, but look with me on the screen at Romans 2, 4. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. 
I said earlier that trauma will do things to you. Going through COVID will do things to you. Going through painful famine will do things to you. Painful experiences cause us to evaluate who God is. We will either come to the conclusion that God is good and He means things for our good, or He's evil and He's just waiting to smash me. Scripture says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. What has this man just remembered? He's remembered that his dad has been good even to his day laborers. They have more than enough. I don't have anything. And the kindness of God has led him to repentance. He's been good to other people. Maybe he'll be merciful to me. So repentance actually begins with an accurate assessment of your condition. Listen to how severe this young man is about himself. Look at this, verse 18. I have sinned against heaven and into your sight. And if if you want to get the accurate language there, I have sinned into heaven, the old text read. My sins have stacked up before God. Yeah, Dad, I've sinned against you, but I've sinned against heaven first. Do you notice the progression? Look at the story closely. See the progression. He recognizes sin first and foremost is against God. Sin is always first and foremost against God before it's against anyone else. And then he also has sinned against his parents. He recognizes that, and that's a crucial realization. He recognizes he's lost all claims to being a son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, had he stopped there... If he had stopped at that point, the experience would only be regret. But true repentance always involves the will. I told you repentance is going in one direction and turning and going in the opposite direction. If it doesn't involve the will, all you're doing is spinning in circles. And you may end up going right back in the same direction again. Repentance actually means going in the opposite direction. It involves the will. So you find this young man saying, I will rise, I will go, I will say. See, the determinations may be really great, but unless you actually act on them, it's never going to amount to anything other than thought. I had someone come to me after the 9 o'clock service who said, I've never thought of it that way before. When I confess my sins before God, I'm thinking I'm, I'm done at that point, but I actually have to act on it. That's right, you do. I have to act on it. What am I going to do to repent, to demonstrate that? That's why Jesus said there's got to be fruit in keeping with repentance. So we're going to end the story now with this last section here where he describes his action. Verse 20. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And something is missing at that point. I want you to pay close attention to that. We'll hit this next week. He rehearsed his speech beforehand of what he was going to say. And he doesn't get beyond this point. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. 
The father's advance compassion for his son should be screaming something to you right now. The, the father knows in advance he's on the porch. The son is still coming down the road. He's a long way off. So the father's compassion, it assumes that there's a knowledge already of the son's condition. Dad's on the porch and he's already filled with compassion before he ever hears the story. I see him and the father's gut begins to ache, church. There's a word that Jesus uses here, this really, really strong word because the father has been looking and looking and looking. Picture the Pharisees on the edge of their seat as Jesus is describing this. Here's what heaven is like. God is not only the one who seeks, he's constantly watching. He's looking and looking and looking, and then he uses this bombshell word. He felt compassion for him. This is 180 degrees from what they would expect in their culture when they would think of a father slapping a son across the face. This compassion is splognizomai. You've heard me use that word before. In a huge $10 word in the Greek language, it, it means for your innards to hurt, for the gut to ache. I know many of you have gone through this. You've, you've ached in your gut for a person who's wandered away in your life. You felt that pain? You know what it is to hurt internally? You're feeling a piece of, of what God feels to a much greater degree. He's filled with compassion in advance of even hearing the story because he knows. God is sovereign. He knows all things. Say amen if you agree with that. He knows everything. He's omniscient. There's a second component to what Jesus uses here to end this. He says the father ran. In the Middle East, noble men do not run, especially older noble men. It's considered a disgrace for your ankle to be revealed even to this day when they wear their robes. They don't want their calf showing and their knee showing, let alone their ankle. And so they don't run. So to, to the Pharisees hearing this, this is absolute horror. Well, you, he runs, and Jesus doesn't use a word here that indicates a trot or an old man jog. It's the word dramon, and it means to sprint. It's the word that's used of warriors running in the stadiums of the Roman Olympics. Jesus is picturing God the Father sprinting. Jesus tells us that God can't get there fast enough. And he not only runs to welcome him home, he didn't even allow him to finish his speech. He forgives him and then tells the servants to scurry about. We'll dive into that next week because he wants the celebration to begin immediately. Here's what I want you to take away this morning. The image of the Father in heaven who wants his people so badly that he is rich in mercy. Say amen again if you agree with that. He, he's rich in mercy. And is he rich in grace? 
powerful thought that's going to come out next week when you think of the son wanting to be a hired servant. I want to earn my way back, Father. God doesn't even let him complete the speech. What a picture of the Father running to meet you who celebrates when the lost are found. So let's end this by going all the way back 360 degrees to where we started this morning. Why is Jesus hanging out with those people? We despise them. Because God's rich in mercy. And and heaven is populated with those people. Were we not those people ourselves? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. It's exactly what Jesus is driving at. No matter how sinful, God shows us he's waiting patiently on the porch for the return. This is our God. He brings peace to your sadness. This is our God. So the listeners and the readers of this story who are in his audience, and every one of us hearing this today, every person in this auditorium, every person watching at home or at work, we have to ask ourselves, where do I line up in my attitude towards people who are far from God? Do you just despise them? Or do you pray for them? Do we model who God is and chase after them? And chasing after them might mean just getting on your knees and praying for them. God, would you take the blinders off their eyes, allow them to see, free them. I have to ask myself, where do I line up? Where do I line up in my attitude that way? So I want to encourage you, do not give up on someone when they run to a distant land. Because God's sitting on the porch waiting for them. So I'm compelled to practice forgiveness as I want God to forgive me. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? That's what Jesus was driving at. Know this. Here's the reason people were attracted to Jesus. I said, why are they attracted to him? Here's why. A sinner doesn't need to be told they're a sinner. They already know. They feel unworthy. Somebody who's living in sin feels unworthy, so what they're searching for is someone who loves the unworthy unconditionally. That's our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being patient with us as we work through these things in our life. I'm tempted to look at this God and, and, and recognize that I'm probably more like the second or the firstborn son than I, I want to be. I have more of the attitude of the Pharisees. I think that might be true for many of us. And we feel self-righteous, and yet we have to remember who we were. You're father to the orphan. God, thank you for adopting us and bringing us in. But I pray that there would be um, true action on the part of New Hope Church this week, our, our church body, that it would be demonstrated in our life this week, that we would be known as those who are seeking like you do.
looking for opportunity to extend the reach. And Father, I recognize that might just be in the act of prayer. Perhaps some of us need to start there. God, move us, even this afternoon, to start there, to begin praying for that person whom we have something against. Put us in that place. Put us in that place where we look more like the one who died for us, even though we were willing to kill him. And he still forgave us. I pray for that, Father. I pray earnestly that we would be identified as legitimate Christ followers. We praise you. I praise you for what you've given us. So we ask that you would send us out with your blessing now. Bless the time that we've spent here examining your word. We praise you in Jesus' name, the one who is worthy of all praise and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.